0: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I am joined, not just today, but for the next three weeks, that's right, by Ken Kacken, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Can we're about to start saying stop saying welcome to the show because it's just going to be us for a while.
1: Yeah, we're going to be the Iron Man of the politics guys.
0: Yeah, see, I, I like that because you know, as listeners know, uh, uh, last week Mike was letting everybody know he and his wife are off taking a look, and they're and they're and they're trying to become expats, right? They're trying to move overseas. And that got me to thinking about this, Ken, and I think this is important. And that is, right, I mean, we have Mike, I mean, how is he going to really be a patriot if he doesn't live in the United States, right? So I don't know. Well, his absence Amer- can make the heart grow fonder. <laughs> so maybe they'll get out there, they're going to be like, France, ah, whatever, and they're going to come back to the United States. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then i mean you know i mean jay he's supposed to be the big patriot but i don't know i mean sometimes he supports some positions and i uh, so i yep, feel yep. like we're <laughs> we are the iron we're we are the iron right we are the true american patriots of the politics guys we are the tent poles around uh, uh which this show is going to stand for a while <laughs> Well, it, you know, in seriousness, though, for listeners, uh, you know, Ken and I are going to be taking this on uh, both the main shows and the bonus shows for the next three weeks, which I'm really excited about. So uh, I thought we kind of get started with this is an earlier court ruling, uh, uh, Ken, this week. But what I thought we get started with is a federal judge in Louisiana actually barred the White House from interfering with social media companies' behavior. Now. It's a big opinion. Uh, It's 155 pages. So I'm going to admit I didn't read every single word perfectly, but I got through most of it. Um, And so here's what the facts kind of seem to be. And I think this is going to end up being a pretty big case as it moves forward. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, it appears, and this is kind of the undisputed part of the decision, uh, not only worked with the White House, but they gave them high-level tools to allow them to kind of look at, target, and flag information. Now I want to be clear here because this has come up a few times uh, in different kind of contexts. You know, if you take a look at this opinion, a lot of the people who are the uh, making the complaint here have wacky beliefs, right? I mean, that's just the way that it is. I don't agree with them all. Uh, one of the uh, one of the individuals in the lawsuit, a company called Gateway Pundits, uh, is a uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a whack job news outlet, but. That's kind of really beside the point here for this case, because it's really about, you know, what can or can't come forward. So what's happened is, is that Twitter, for example, allowed the White House uh, to even go beyond this kind of, you might call it crackpot stuff, to take down things like parody accounts. Now, why this is all really kind of controversial, according to the federal judge, and which is true, is is that none of the issues that are going on here actually violate the terms of service. So. For example, the parody account that got taken down isn't a violation of the terms of service. It was just something the White House wanted them to do. Um, When it came to medical commentary, Facebook explicitly deprioritized some content, even though that it didn't violate its own rules, if the White House asked them to so do. Not only this, but it actually had in-person meetings with these companies where it required what they called, quote, single points of access, so that they, that is, again, the White House, could flag information. Now I, we've kind of talked about this a little bit on one front, Ken, and that is, is you know, we've often argued that individuals don't have free speech rights on social media, and what we mean by that is to say, right, it's a private company; they have the ability to say what is or does not relate to their rules. The problem here, as I'm reading it, I'm curious what your take on is. It, it seems to be is okay. We have a bunch of things that didn't violate their rules. But then you have government uh, officials stepping in and saying, hey, it'd be really nice if you'd take this down or, hey, this is damaging to, you know, this parody account is damaging to us. Can you take that down? So in other words, are they effectively circumventing First Amendment rights by stepping into the private sphere and saying, hey, could you could you do us some favors? And the federal judge in this case is saying, yeah, you can't do that. And that's why we get this injunction. So so what do you think about this, Ken?
1: Well, you you won't be surprised that I think it's another um, corrupt uh, uh, ruling that has no basis in law from another uh, corrupt uh, Trump judge, and I think it it follows um, a pattern that you see in a lot of these corrupt rulings, both in the in the recent Supreme Court and in lower court rulings, where. They will um, express uh, legal principles that everyone should agree with that are, you know that are correct. Right? I mean, the, the principle that we don't have a ministry of truth, the principle that the, the government can't uh, suppress, suppress uh, speech just because it has weird ideas. You know, these are all valid, correct principles. And a lot of the recent uh, corrupt opinions, like this one, will express valid corrupt principles like that as their major premise, and then they'll and then they'll just um, completely distort and mislead. About the facts in in a way that um, bear no no just no uh, relation to reality, um, and then they'll conclude that the uh, Biden administration has has violated um, those kind of principles um, when it, when it completely obviously hasn't. Um, and you know in this case, you know the the, the parts that the the um, court leaves out are a um, you know that the Facebook and and um, uh, um, uh, the other social media sites mm-hmm. not not. Well, I guess it was Twitter then, yeah. I mean, it changed when Elon Musk came in. But the, these these uh, sites uh, welcomed and wanted uh, th- this kind of engagement. You know that they they um, weren't being censored. They were, um, you know, they had realized that they their their platforms had been used to uh, uh, foment the January sixth um, insurrection, and that their platforms had been used uh, to dis- disseminate a lot of harmful uh, um, misleading information about vaccines that was causing a lot of deaths. And you know, don't forget, seven million people have died of COVID, and, in the world, not all the United so States. So why not just change
0: they, your terms of service then to make the, well, to, to kind of outlaw those kinds of things in your in your principle? Don't, I mean, that seemingly yeah. would have would have potentially fixed this issue, right? I mean because the 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 piece of the fact, and I'm curious about how that fits yeah. into your argument here. Is hey, had this been in the terms of service, woohoo, move yeah. forward. But because it's not in the terms of service, then you're yeah. now targeting individuals and you're kind of viol- I mean kind of you're violating the contract, saying this is allowed, but we're not going to allow it.
1: No, there's no contract like that. Um, the, the it's it's a complete well, mis- user agreement. It's a misleading- That's a contract. The user agreement doesn't um, give give anybody a right to have any content on on these on these platforms, and even if it did, it wouldn't be enforceable because nobody has paid any consideration um, for that. You know, these are all free accounts, which would make it an unenforceable contract if it were a contract. Um, So there's no contract between the users and Facebook. And, you know, under both the First Amendment and under Section 230 of the um, Communications Decency Act, which is relevant but misused in this opinion, um, the very reason that um, social media platforms have immunity from liability uh, for for content that's posted by um, third parties um is to enable uh, those social media platforms um to act as what's sometimes called good Samaritans, and to just take down content that they think is harmful. that That's the purpose of giving them the immunity. if they If they didn't have that immunity, um they would run a risk of liability. Um, if they took down somebody's content, but the, the they were given that immunity on the express quid pro quo. Well, um, uh, social media th- uh, uh, companies and, and any kind of company that holds hosts third-party content on the internet, because this statute is older than social media. But um, even just like uh, world, world Wide Web uh, platforms, they 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 have immunity from liability for third-party content to enable them to have the ability to take down third-party content that they consider harmful. Um, without having uh, liability. So they don't owe anybody any right to um, uh, have anything on their platform. I think like if you take the logic of this argument seriously, um, you know, I'll I'll give you an analogy that I think will expose how how vacuous it is. So, you know, I am a state government employee. I, I teach at a state university. I'm a law professor at Northern Kentucky University. And very frequently, um, the editors of our student editors of our Northern Kentucky Law Review will have articles submitted to them for publication, and they'll come to me and they'll say, "Would you mind reading this article? Somebody submitted it. We don't know if it's legit or not. We don't know if it should be published or not." You know, and I'll read it, and sometimes I'll say, "No, this is not a legit article. I, I recommend that you don't publish it." Um, and then sometimes they don't publish it. Now, <laughs> according to um, according to this judge's opinion. Judge Doherty's opinion. You know, I have just violated the First Amendment by doing that. Just by offering an opinion to the student editors of the law review that I don't think something that was submitted is worth publishing.
0: You know, well, um, aren't, there, and, and aren't it, there two except aren't there two slight differences to your analogy? I mean, of course, in the one case, you're not a government agency, you yourself, right? Sure, so I I am. Mean-
1: sure I am. I'm I'm am I'm a state actor. I absolutely am. I don't know how you could say I'm not. I mean, the, the only capacity that they're asking me my opinion is that I'm I'm a, a professor at the State University. It's in my official capacity as a professor.
0: Right. I mean, they are asking you in your kind of bureaucratic expertise judgment whether well, because or not something... I'm a, because they,
1: they recognize that because I'm their professor. It's because I'm a state actor.
0: There's, it's not independent of that. I'm not sure. I mean... I'm not sure you would classify the White House as an expert. I guess it's not the state actor that I'm having issue with there potentially, but it's the expertise. I'm sorry. Continue. Continue. Yeah.
1: No, they are experts. I mean, the, 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 think about this. This was about vaccine disinformation and the White House is saying well, that, that was Facebook one piece and, of it. Well, let's let's start with that piece of it. We can get to the other pieces of it. But on that piece, it fits the paradigm perfectly. Right. You've got a lot of misinformation that's going to get people killed. You've got Facebook and, and the old Twitter pre-Elon Musk saying you know, we don't want our platforms used um, to, to disseminate vaccine disinformation and get people killed. We want to have some input from the, the best experts um, about the best uh, medical advice here. And actually, the U.S. government is the best experts. You know, Dr. Anthony Fauci and his staff at HHS, you know, they are the best experts. And so they're giving their opinions to Facebook, which wants those opinions. And, and Facebook is is using that um, to figure out ways to uh, Reduce the dissemination of harmful misinformation that's going to get people killed, and and there's no there's no compulsion there. I mean, another way to think about this, if you want to put it in a First Amendment framework, is that it's commonly said that um, you know we shouldn't have censorship, but that the the the, the best remedy for uh, noxious speech is good counter speech, and that's exactly what happened here, right? That the, the 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 experts and the officials at the government are persuading um, Facebook or Twitter. Um, you know, you you don't want to be the publisher who publishes this harmful disinformation that's going to get people killed. And let us explain to you why this is harmful disinformation that will get people killed. Um, and then they come around to agree, OK, the, you've given us good pr- explanations and now we don't want to publish that. It's, it's just like any publisher deciding that they don't want to publish something because it's not something they want to be
0: associated with. I don't disagree that uh Facebook and Twitter have every right to say what gets to be on or not on their platform. Um however, I do think that where you where you might start to I think your analogy begins to break down is where you start moving away from the covid piece of the ruling and you start looking at it as that larger whole which includes several examples where it's clearly an ideological underpinning. So for example, this particular parody account is damaging to us, in the words of the White House, and it needs to come down. Well, that's not an expert a uh, state actor saying, hey, this is going to get somebody killed. This is somebody saying, hey, this is, this is potentially damaging to us in the White House. Can you do us a favor and, and change your rules just for this particular case? I mean, you can continue to make fun of other people, but just, just don't do it as it surrounds the Bidens in this particular case.
1: Uh, well, you're, you're talking about someone who was, uh, you know, harassing um, Joe Biden's granddaughter, who is, a, 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 I believe, a minor, and who's had um, some some problems. You know that that people are. Um, being very mean to her about... And I'm again, not saying you know, maybe, it's a
0: good thing. And I'm yeah, not... I mean, again. Yeah, I, I, but I,
1: that's it. it. <laughs> I mean, it, it might not be that, that you know, it, it, it's not that, that someone could be um, uh, uh, punished by law for publishing a, uh, that kind of content, but Facebook has to make the decision whether they want to publish that kind of content. And I mean, the fact that it was brought to their attention and you, even you just said, it's not a good thing. You know, why, why can't Facebook say it's not a good thing and we don't want to publish I would, it? I, mean,
0: I, would, I would happily but, say that if they were to make that... In other words, if I could do the same thing, if you had a rule that said, look, you can't have parody accounts about minors or you're, we're not going to allow you to have parody accounts, I think that would be something useful as well. So that any particular individual could get the same kind of uh, access and say, hey, look, here's somebody violating your terms of service. You need to take this down. It doesn't matter agree. what
1: the ter- It just doesn't matter what the terms of service you know what I'm
0: saying are. Is, but to say that to do the same thing for everyone, right? You're not doing Why the same should they? Thing. They don't have to. They they have their own First Amendment
1: rights. They have their own rights under Section 230. They are deemed to be a publisher. They, they can decide what they want to publish and what they don't want to publish. They're not a common carrier. They don't have to treat everybody the same. That, that's one of the huge um, uh, uh, errors of law. You
0: can I'm, happily in, do in that. I mean, so, I mean, again, you can happily do that, but that would then, I think, If you if every social media company did that and explicitly did that only for Democrats or for Democratic presidential candidates, I mean, again, you're perfectly free to do that. But wouldn't that exactly be the traditional conservative argument that social media companies and publishing companies care more about Democrats than they do Republicans? So so I'm not even a Republican.
1: yeah, they're allowed to. I mean, you have Parlor and you have Truth Social. You have these other social media networks that care more about conservatives. They, they, they can do that. You know, th- these these platforms can decide what they want to publish and what they don't want to publish. And there's absolutely no legal bar to that. And there's no legal bar to the um, White House. Um, you know, trying to persuade them not to p- publish certain things, or to anyone else who's not the White House, um, trying to persuade them not to publish certain things. And there's no obligation whatsoever that they be consistent or that they treat everybody fairly. That's that's not what the media has to do under the First Amendment. And 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 um, Facebook is considered to be the media under the First Amendment. Twitter is considered to be the media under the First Amendment. They can decide what they want to publish, what they don't want to publish, and they have no legal obligation to be even-handed. So, what do you think happens next? Uh, you know, I don't know because you got a lot of corrupt judges um in the Eleventh Circuit, or I guess this would be the Fifth Circuit It's in Louisiana. Fifth you've fifth. got even more corrupt judges in the Fifth Circuit and you got um, uh, a corrupt Supreme Court. So I don't know where this is headed now, I, I, I hope that uh, the the Supreme Court, um, you know you you do have a few uh, Supreme Court justices who, um, you know, so far have have, Sided with uh, social media companies in all the Section Two Thirty cases, um, so you know we'll see if they you know stick with the doctrines that they have laid down, um, or you know if they if they go full on partisan like like this like this judge did. But it seems like he's basically saying it's illegal uh, for Facebook or Twitter. To skew um, Democratic. And that is uh, just completely false. You know, I mean, is it, is it illegal well, actually, for the national I mean It, it to could skew still be Obama. false, but
0: I mean, I be- the, the, his out- ultimate outcome is not anything to do with an injunction on the part of the social media companies. It's an injunction that the White House cannot. Pressure social media. That was technically the injunction. Yeah,
1: that is right. It's technically an injunction against them. But but really, it means they can't communicate with them. And that's that's just outrageous. In fact, that that um, re- it ignores a, a huge line of cases which mainly have been advocated by um, Republican justices, although there's been um, some bipartisan support for them. But there's this whole line of uh, First Amendment doctrine called government speech cases where um, the government is allowed to. Um, to engage in speech and to try to influence debates that way. And you know, probably probably the the most um, uh, leading case in that line comes from the 90s, but it's a case called Rust versus Sullivan, And it has to do with um, doctors who wanted to um, treat patients where the payments were coming from Medicaid. So there was government funding for the patients. And the, the government had said, well, as a condition, of um, getting this money and, and treating patients, um, doctors who take that money can't uh, ever mention abortion um, to any patients. And this was back during the time when abortion was still a constitutional right. And there were there were challenges that said um, that violates the doctor's First Amendment rights, that violates the patient's First Amendment rights, that also violates rights to abortion, which were then considered constitutional rights. But a uh, conservative majority in that case um, said, well, the the government's allowed to engage in speech, you know, with its own voice. And if the if the government wants people delivering government services, not to mention abortion, that's just the government's speech. And you know, again, here it's even more clearly the government's speech because you know, unlike in Russ versus Sullivan, where they were even roping in the private doctors who took uh, payments from the government and characterizing them as the government, um, here, you know, only, the only speech that's being complained about here is speech that's actually from full-time government officials and. They, they have a right to have um, their administration has a right to have positions and to express them. That's all they've done is express them. And they they clearly haven't coerced anybody. They haven't. You know, that's why you still have networks like Parler and Truth Social and, you know, all these kind of networks that would carry all this garbage. Um, you know, nobody's pressuring them not to. But it's just that Facebook and Twitter didn't want to carry this stuff and they wanted help knowing what not to carry.
0: Well, I mean, I think what we should probably do is to talk about another potentially uh, corrupt Supreme Court case. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, we don't often do this. I set it up that way uh, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people on Discord, which is what it heads up. Remember, uh, if you are a supporter of the show, Discord's one of the access you get to. And a lot of people were very curious about what our takes would have been on, I think, one of the biggest takes that uh, uh, Mike and our newest uh, politics guy, uh, May, was, was talking about. And that was the case of uh, uh, fair, students for fair admission versus Harvard. Uh, and of course, this week, there's some additional add-ons to that, Ken, right? So I mean, we had the, the NAACP now challenging legacy admission. So I kind of want to wrap all of this up you know, in kind of a package for everybody. So again, we don't do this frequently, but we thought it'd be really kind of important to take this case on with this new angle, at least slightly again, in light of what uh, Mike and May did. So to understand all of this, let me kind of re-sum things up. Last week, the Supreme Court uh, in uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard ended up uh, uh, deciding that you can't use race as a uh, factor in admissions. Now, this led to the show last week. That's actually what they launched with. And I'm going to kind of go through that. Um, uh, Ken and I listened through. I generally listen to the, to the other hosts as well. Uh, but I took some uh, notes so that we can kind of get up back up to speed. Uh, and May and Mike, actually, this was one of the few things last week that they kind of seemingly agreed a lot together on. Um, One of the things they agreed on was that racial discrimination is a part of affirmative action and therefore should come under strict scrutiny. The pair also argued that the facts were not for the minority of the court. In other words, Mike uh, actually said that he agreed with the majority's reasoning. Mike and May also agreed um, that while everyone agrees diversity in the classroom is important, but the problem is that those outcomes are vague. In other words, when does that end? May specifically argued That the disparity of admission, that's a a 10% probability for a a white student versus a 98% for a black student with identical scores at Harvard and a nine times more likely for a black student than for an Asian student with identical scores to get into Harvard, is problematic if there is not a measurable, quantifiable, when does that end goal in place. Uh, She would go on to argue that that there needs to be a logical endpoint for affirmative action because it is a short-term remedy to past discrimination, even though it itself is a form of discrimination. In other words, both of them agreed that affirmative action is kind of a temporary violation of the Constitution, and it has to have some measurable end and fall under strict scrutiny. Now, that's what they got to, Ken. Now, of course, this week, we had the NAACP's response to this but before we get to that, I just want to pause for a second and say, what do you think about the case? And, and, and what was your take on Mike and May's position on the case?
1: Yeah, thanks for summarizing their position, too. So, um, you know, I, I don't disagree with them as a policy matter. I think I have a lot of the same concerns about um, the way affirmative action is used that they have. However, the case is plainly wrong as a legal matter. Um, You know, I I don't I don't have any qualm at all with states like California and Michigan that have decided to end affirmative action. I I think that might be a good idea. Um, But to say that it's unconstitutional. Um, is, is um, so so odd because think about this. It, within a couple of days, the, the Supreme Court, um, d- not only did they d- decide the Harvard case, but they, they also decided a different case uh, called um, C- uh, 303 Creative versus Alanis, um about a web designer who um, didn't hypothetically didn't want to have to design websites for same-sex marriages. And if, if you look at those two cases together, the Supreme Court says um, in the um, uh, Harvard case, Um, Harvard is not allowed to um, give a preference to a group of applicants based on aspects of their identity. Um, But then in the Creative 303 case, they say, but a web designer is allowed to discriminate against um, a a group of um, customers uh, based on their identity. and I think there's literally no way to square those two holdings un- unless you um, just think the principle is that you know white male cisgender people can never be discriminated against, but other groups can. Um, and I, I, I just you know keep coming back to that as evidence of the corruption. Like if there was any coherent uh, First Amendment theory here or Fourteenth Amendment theory, then both the two cases should have come out the same way as each other. They they both should have either the institutions. Um, should have to comply with law in both cases, um, or the institutions should have a constitutional right to ignore the law um, in both cases. But I, I just don't see how there's a, a constitutional right of someone who wants to discriminate against one minority group to do so, um, but, but, a, but, 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 but no right of, of someone who wants to, um, uh, to discriminate in favor of a minority group. So I, I think that's really where the, the corruption is exposed the most. And I think there's no valid legal theory that gets you to the result that the court got to. Even though I think it sounds like Mike and May were mainly talking about policy. And I think on, on policy, I might be on their side. Um, but on, on law, um, I think that's up to the state legislatures or to the state constitutions or to the Board of Regents of the institutions and if, if they've been authorized to make these decisions. And there's, there's nothing in the
0: U.S. Constitution that really addresses these issues. So you don't think the equal protection clause so i and, and to be clear here yeah. I had not prepped or read a bunch on um the uh uh, uh the colorado yeah, uh, the, the K- case, case right yeah. and so i'm i'm at a slight disadvantage yeah. there I, so i i i'm not going to push no, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I,
1: again the equal protection clause and we've talked about it before and let's plug our, our bonus shows too we're yeah. going to get to it in the in the, in the in the bonus shows when we get to the 14th amendment no i think the, the correct understanding of the equal protection clause which was the one that um, the supreme court fully articulated uh, back in in 1941, in a case called Caroline Products, where um, there's a, a footnote footnote four in Caroline Products that um, uh, explains the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, and it's not an obscure footnote. It's the most cited footnote in the history of constitutional law. It's been cited tens of thousands of times, and it says that the concept of the Equal Protection Clause is that it's a it's a um, protection against the tyranny of the majority, and that the the majority is not allowed to um, use its majoritarian strength in in our democracy uh, to beat up on discrete and insular minorities uh, just because it has um, the, the numerical power to do so. That, that, that bias and animus and prejudice against uh, minorities, against discrete and insular minorities, um, can't be codified into law. L- legal disabilities can't be imposed on those minority groups when they, when they just don't have the ability to protect themselves in a system of majority rule. So it's, it's definitely a one-way ratchet. And you know the, the conservative justices have been trying to back away from that um, for for decades. And you know some of the um, conservative justices, particularly Justice Thomas, you know since since the early 90s, um, have been um, advocating for more of a colorblind constitution. Um, but that you know h- hasn't been the rule. It still isn't the rule. Um, even in this case, they 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 made exceptions for the military academies, and they and they said that the military academies can continue to use. Um, uh, Race-conscious admissions, because otherwise we're going to wind up with an all-white uh, officer corps and a, a, a all-minority, mostly minority enlisted corps, and it's going it's to lead to dysfunction in the military. Um, now, for them to even take account of that kind of policy consideration um, implies they still haven't gone to a colorblind rule. Uh, they're just they're just doing their own policy judgments, and it's really not their place to do that.
0: So, I mean, here's one of the things, as you mentioned, the, the footnote, I mean, of course, we have the 2004 case as well. Um, one of the issues that I think we see in the modern, the, the, the I should say, contemporary the United States, the contemporary America, is we have now, I believe, an overly simplistic idea of the, you know, you're talking about the ratchet only goes one way, and there's truth to that. Right. Uh, It's difficult to be in the majority group uh, and be the one against whom you are being discriminated, I think, in a a, a meaningful way. But I think that that view has uh, conceals the fact that there isn't just a singular monolithic uh, uh, minority group uh, that is treated equally or similarly to the other groups. And therefore, especially in the United States, where today, I mean, the uh, uh, white people are one of the slowest growing. We're not, we're going to be minority soon. I don't mean minority in the sense of uh, historic discrimination, but I mean just numeric in here. And I think that's where here in this case where you're talking about, well, within disparaged groups, you have this wide difference of preference. I think that could, in fact, be an equal protection clause issue, especially in the case of Harvard, where you're getting government money. So, I mean, again, I don't want to get I won't go all the way over to the uh, to the cake in this moment, but. It is a little hard to swallow to say, OK, so and I recognize this is one of those areas where those on the left have pushed back, but you have a number of other groups. And they're not the only one, although it's one of the uh, the major ones mentioned in this case who are also seemingly getting weird outcomes because of the way that we have rank-ordered race among our minority groups. And, and, and that seems counter to, to even your understanding there uh, of, the, uh, of the Equal Protection Clause. And so I'm curious about what you should say in that. I mean, so again, if you just, just had a monolithic group the, you know, the oppressed, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then you had whites. Okay. Yeah. It ratchets it one direction, but what about internal for those groups? And that's part of that's this a, case. I mean, that's a big part absolutely. of this case.
1: It's a big part. It's a powerful argument. And I, I think it's not as ridiculous as the other arguments, but I, I, so the argument you're talking about here is that, um, when the, you know, you have these, uh, colleges in this case, Harvard and North Carolina, and they want to give, um, some preferences to African-Americans And in so doing, the actual program that they've enacted um, seems to, um, uh, you know, those preferences are, the impact of that, it burdens Asian Americans more than it burdens white people. So um, let me give you a a specific example,
0: even from my own, uh, when I went to Northern Kentucky University, that was some of the beginning of my interaction with this, uh, and I worked in student government, and we were actually supposed to put, we had to nominate individuals to be on university committees. Uh, and there were particular ones needed to have a person who was diverse. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'll never forget. This is the first time I really kind of interacted with this. We had a really good individual. Uh, he was from uh, Nigeria. Uh, we had nominated him this, uh, to the committee, put him on the committee. And the dean, oh, my gosh, I have never seen anybody so angry about anything. And he came down. He's like, this is a diversity position. This guy's not black. He's African. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, see, on policy grounds, I, I share exactly your frustration, and I guess Michael's and May's as well. I'm not in favor. I'm not actually in favor of that kind of affirmative action. I'm against it. Um, but what, what I what I think is just that the Supreme Court has arrogated to itself wrongly um, the the idea that um, it gets it gets to it, it, it advance its policy views rather than uh, appropriately deferring to the. Uh, but is that policy a policy views.
0: view, or is that I mean I, I, that fee, I mean it's that a, seems, it seems that's that's Part of the equal protection clause, it seems like to me. Even that understanding that you had outlined—that's what I was.
1: Yeah, well, let's let's get back to the Asian Americans because, I, yeah, I think that's yeah. where it actually comes up in the case. So, Asian Americans—they note that um, because of the. Um, Maybe the 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 things that are valued in the admissions process, which are sort of reverse engineered, perhaps to pick up on a few more. There, there's maybe an overvalue being placed on some characteristics that some African Americans might have, and and uh, and then that is um, disadvantaging Asians even more than it's disadvantaging whites. So um, so that you know maybe they're they're de-emphasizing um, grades and test scores a little bit and you know, Asian Americans are especially excelling at grades and test scores, or they're, they're de-emphasizing um, uh, um, uh, classical music instrument uh, um, a little bit, and Asian Americans are therefore more disadvantaged even than whites by not getting uh, more credit for that. Um, so that's kind of the argument. Now, I would say this, on, on my theory of the Constitution, um, if, if the evidence would bear out, that there's been um, a kind of systematic discrimination against Asian Americans as a group, uh, more than just the the, the general um, uh, burden that's placed on um, everybody who's not um, a, a beneficiary of the affirmative action. So if Asians really are systematically being burdened more than whites, um, I think that's a valid claim. Uh, but I don't think the court actually went into the evidence enough for that. You know, I think they they just really rested a lot on the idea that. Um, race is obviously counting for a lot for African-American candidates. Um, and they kind of noted um, that, that Asian-American candidates are disproportionately burdened. But but that could be because of other things, right? It could be because, um, you know, you still have these alumni preferences, and I know we're going to talk about that. But white people are highly disproportionately going to benefit from alumni preferences um, compared to both African-Americans and Asian-Americans. Um, you have the fact that most of these selective schools are are trying to field football teams and basketball teams and whatever. And, you know, athlete recruiting, you know, probably will, um, just just as a social fact, is benefiting whites and blacks more more than it's benefiting Asian-Americans by and large for the sports that they're recruiting for. So there may be explanations for this that... could could refute the idea that um, that the numerical disparity is because of discrimination, but but actually I will acknowledge that I think there was some evidence in there that the numerical disparity for African for I'm sorry for Asian Americans did in fact reflect um, actual discrimination, and I thought the the strongest evidence of that that I saw in the in the opinion uh, was that. Um, you have these um, alumni interviewers who re- interview all the candidates and, and give them scores. And then later you have the, the admissions office at the university who give kind of um, you know, personality scores to all the applicants, you know, separate and apart from their, um, you know, academic scores and athletic scores and this and that, and the the for Asian Americans, there was a a, a somewhat big disparity where the um, the alumni interviewers were giving them very high ratings, and then the um, admissions office was downgrading them. And uh, I I actually do see that as as bonafide evidence of um, actual discrimination uh, against Asian Americans. And I I think if the court had you know had a more thorough discussion. Of that evidence, of whether there's countervailing evidence, of whether there's an explanation for why those scores are being downgraded more for um, Asian Americans than for others, you know, I think that's a legitimate ground of inquiry. And I think if if Asian Americans, in fact, are being discriminated against relative to whites um, or relative to uh, all candidates, um, I, I think that that would violate the equal protection clause. Um, but I, but I I just think that's that's not the court just was oversimplistic because it just said, well, they're giving a preference to. Um, African American candidates, but I, I think that itself is is just not unconstitutional.
0: Okay, I'm going to pause this there for just a minute, and when we come back, Ken, let's take on what the NAACP's response to this has been since we've been kind of skirting on that for a minute. So, Ken, let's take the other item of this, and this is what's new for this week. This isn't something that uh, Mike and May had the chance to get through, and that is that the NAACP, and I'll say, I think rightfully. Called for the end of legacy admission for schools that are already receiving financial aid dollars. Now, many schools have already done that, but there are still some holdouts. Harvard is one of them, um, and it was it was uh, their statement about this was I thought telling, uh, and they they effectively said, look. We already did a lot for diversity. We took a case all the way to the Supreme Court uh, in favor of diversity. And even though we lost that case, we're going to continue to care about diversity. But ending legacy admission is just simply not on the table. Uh, And from my point of view, uh, uh, Ken, I I think we might. I'm curious if we agree on this or not. I Actually, I'm not sure. I think oftentimes race is a a proxy for economic conditions. Um, and I think here we have one of those potentially showing major schools that are all for affirmative action in one sense are not as quick to want to do it when it has to do with economic leveling. Uh, but of course, you know, it isn't easy because you have all of these legacies with deep pocketbooks and we recognize the politics that go into that. Uh, but given the court's ruling, it would seem hard to to see how one would uphold uh, 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 legacy, but obviously it looks like Harvard might be on the other side of the case this time, <laughs> you know, uh, battling the opposite direction. What, what's your take on the NAACP's response, the suit that they filed, and and what do you think about that and its likelihood?
1: So I'll try to answer that on three levels, because you actually your comments th- that went to more than just that. But uh,
0: I, will, I was um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I, yeah, 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 I, I, yeah. I gave you a so, lot to chew on. Right, I yeah. so,
1: so, so on the on the lawsuit, I think the, the, the idea is that it's it's illegal for a university to have a, a admissions process that discriminates against um, uh, minorities. And so in the past um p- clearly these 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 schools that had um, affirmative action admissions for minorities uh were not discriminating against minorities and they 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 were able to you know both um, give alumni preferences um to mostly white applicants, well, most mostly solely applicants them white. because almost
0: only given yeah I mean yeah. one thing to keep in mind it's almost kind of like voting in that sense, right uh the grandfathering clause of it all. You know. Yeah. If you could have been in Harvard from the, the, the period of time, then you're going to be white. Right? You know, probably. If you yeah. could have voted, I mean, we're getting, you were white, yeah. right? You know, so.
1: By, by and large, I mean, the clock is rolling forward some and, and you know. Oh, um, for sure.
0: Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So now we're talking about alumni kids where the alums were maybe in the 1990s and uh, the uh, 1990s, these schools were not all white, but they were still probably a little bit disproportionately white. You know, if you're dialing it back to the 1950s and 60s, then these schools were all all white. Um, and uh, um, but yes, yeah, so I think the alumni preference in general is certainly going to give some kind of skew towards white people. And so, you know, until now, um, uh, the college admissions processes could easily um, uh, um, push back on that that impact by just also giving preferences to minorities. So, if you give preferences to both minorities and alumni kids um, the way they were doing it until now, um, the, the preference for minorities is is gonna keep minorities um, certainly at, at a proportional level of representation and not at a level where they're being discriminated against by the alumni preference. But now that there's not gonna be um preference for, for minorities anymore, the argument that the NAACP is making is that um, using alumni preferences will have a racially disparate uh, impact. Now, in terms of the um, merits of that argument, It does have to be proved, and I think that it isn't as obvious as it might sound that that's that's factually correct because Again, you are talking about the 1990s now, um, and pretty soon, like even the early 2000s, uh, where it's it's those classes whose kids are coming in, and um, you know, affirmative action was already pretty heavily used by that time. So th- it may not be that those classes are are so disproportionately white that the alumni preference will um, skew the racial composition of the class. Um, if it doesn't, um, if that fact can't be proved, then this suit is a non-starter. Gotcha. Right? So there's no legal obligation to have any kind of merit system, the legal obligation is just to not um, discriminate against minorities. And that, that comes from Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So I think I think, you know, the NAACP is going to have to prove out some facts against some particular institutions about who the alumni were. In the in the years um, that are relevant now in the years where current applicants are kids of, of those alumni um, but if they can prove it out I think they'll have a, a case of, of some sort um, and I don't I don't know that the remedy would mean that there can't be an alumni preference anymore but it would mean that they'd have to um, you know figure out some way to um, they might I mean the schools might even be able to make lem- lemonade out of lemon there and say well since our alumni preference is having a disproportionate impact on minority applicants, we need to uh, compensate for that by admitting more minority applicants. And that could be a
0: backdoor That could be way. the backdoor, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, um, the, you know, the, just like, um, you know, I think you could analogize that to, um, you know, right now today, K through 12 schools are not allowed to take account of race when they assign students to which school they go to. But for many years um, after Brown versus Board of Ed, they did have to because they were under desegregation plans, right? So um, I think this could be more like that—that that a Harvard or a North Carolina could say, "Well, it, we we have to be we have to be under some kind of court-ordered plan now to get our minority enrollment back up um, because our our alumni preferences are uh, having a disparate impact on it." So maybe maybe it would go that way. I mean, I don't know. Hmm. I don't see any legal basis for saying that um, alumni preferences would be illegal otherwise. I think the only legal basis for saying they would be illegal would be to say that they're There's evidence that they're disproportionately impacting minority applicants.
0: And, you know, it's it's true. You want to almost have that knee jerk reaction to say, well, it would have to be. But, of course, part of that's probably a little bit of uh, time loss in the sense that eh, I think sometimes it's hard when you're thinking about the timeline for when individuals are going to be in school. You're right. I mean, you're talking about late 1990s. Are the you know, those are the parents now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that's a different era. You know, even working in higher education, I have to keep reminding myself of that of that push, um, you know, as those ages get uh, older. Um,
1: yeah, I think the that's, other that's thing an excellent you, point. <laughs> the other thing you mentioned that doesn't go to the lawsuit, but just generally, um, you know, alumni preferences. Um, I think there's good reasons for them, although I'll also say um, My own kids didn't want to um, use them. So, um, you know, I I went to Princeton. Princeton is one of the schools that probably most heavily uses um, alumni preferences. Um, I myself was not an alumni kid, but my kids are, you know, are alumni kids. And uh, when I when I uh, went there um, and again, it was not even it was like only one third as hard to get into when I went there as it is now. So, you know, now it's gotten much harder for anyone to get into. But when I went there, I felt like I benefited a lot from the alumni preferences, um, even though I wasn't an alumni kid, because for one thing, you know, a lot of my classmates um, had a lot of institutional knowledge about the place, which enriched my experience. Um, And also, you know, a lot of the classmates, you know, had parents that gave a lot of money. And I certainly benefited from that as well, both in the the sense of financial aid that I got, and in the sense of just what kind of resources were available to me. So I didn't have a big problem with it as, as someone who got into Princeton without an alumni preference, it didn't bother me that other kids had alumni preferences. Now, when when my own kids were applying to college, um, they wouldn't apply there. And they they actually said, yeah, they said the reason they wouldn't apply there is they didn't want to have to wonder whether they only got in because of an alumni preference. So, you know, for them, they saw it as um, just a negative that would kind of undermine them. Um, And, uh, but that, you know, so I had a very opposite perspective on that from my kids. But I think the schools do get a lot of benefit from having families that have long-term association with them, having families that'll be long-term donors, and having an institutional culture where some people come in, you know, with with a lot more um, knowledge of the, the tradition. So I, I, I never had a problem with it. Um, but I, I think, you know, I know a lot of people do have a problem with it. I also think a lot of people have a very artificial idea of what a merit system would look like.
0: You know, <laughs> Well, if, that, is yeah, yeah, that is very yeah. true. That is very true.
1: I mean, what, what, what would a merit system look like? You know, I think in, in, in Princeton these days, and it did get a lot harder to get in the, than when I went there, but, you know, the, the number of valedictorians that they reject um, is larger than the size of the class. Right. So, I mean, they reject more high school valedictorians. If, if they admitted only valedictorians, they'd still be rejecting the majority of their valedictorians. So, you know, in in that kind of s- system, I, I I don't even know what, it, what a merit system looks like.
0: No, I, I mean, in, 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 there is a valid point there. And that goes, to, I mean, one of the things that's hard to just fathom, I know that we have, there's actually fewer, just, I don't know that we're getting off topic a little bit, but There are fewer applicants to uh, colleges than there ever have been uh, because the population of both uh, individuals that age and their desire to go to college has waned in the the last decade. Um, But even accounting for that, because you just have so many people, you're absolutely true in the sense of the... You know, well, what would it take to get in I mean, even at uh, smaller schools like what I work at um, and like some of our we have some discord people on. We were swapping some of those stories this past week, um, you know, the well, I had all A's. Oh, well, you and everyone else I have looked yeah. at, you know, <laughs> for, <laughs> right. uh, and, and I think we forget that. And i will take it something else. Until you take a look at like, I don't know. So, okay, here we go. I'm just going to do it. So, Ken, have you ever taken a look at like uh, running or athletic times at the Olympics versus, you know, say from 1930s, 1940s to what just people do at races today?
1: I've never looked, but I, I can see where you're going. I'm yeah. quite sure that everybody's
0: much, much faster today yeah. than they were then. So like I'm, I'm, I am I am comparatively, I'm not a fast dude. I, I'm chronically ill. I have extra tubes in my butt, but I would have, I would have been in the top. I, I could have gone to the Olympics in the 1930s, even as I am <laughs> yeah, right now, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, and today, you know, to be in that kind of uh, pace, you're talking about you're running uh, five minute miles for twenty six point <laughs> two miles. <right>? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's not as if there weren't a lot of people who can do that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think your your point there about, you know, what does a merit system look like? And when you have lo- really large ends as it goes through time. Uh, You know the 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 people who will start hitting the peak of that uh, curve, it increases and increases. It's it's crazy. But okay, okay, we should leave that behind.
1: I got to say one more thing about that. I know I'm belaboring it, but you also talked about social mobility, and I think a lot of people think social mobility is a good role for universities to play, but it's entirely in contradiction with a true merit system, right? I mean, if if you're if you're going to let let in people who are lesser prepared because they need it more, then you're not letting in the people who are better prepared than them, right? It's the opposite of a merit system.
0: No, that's what that that is true. And that can lead us to all kinds of issues talking about, you know, what can you provide and what can you do in those circumstances? But I bet we should do I maybe mean, we could do another episode about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I mean, uh, time runs short and I want to get w- at least one last story in, Ken, maybe two. We'll see what we got. But w- the one I want to make sure we get to is one that you were particularly kind of pointing me towards. And that was. The ongoing uh, developments between Russia and China, and I, I was happy to do this because I don't know we're the pair that often takes on international issues, especially as it deals uh, potentially with U.S. foreign policy. And I think the relationship between Russia and China definitely falls into that category. Uh, and there has been some significant ink spilled uh, over the relationship between Russia and China this past week, and that is because we have two major events have occurred. One, of of course, happened last week, was covered by Mike and May, and that was the Magner mercenary group's mutiny in Russia uh, or uprising. I don't know. I have to think more carefully about that term. Um, but then one of the new items to emerge this week that they weren't able to cover uh, that links into that uh, is that the key leader is not in exile, uh, but is still in Russia, not in Belarus. Uh, despite the terms of his deal requiring him to be in Belarus. Now, the other item that happened this kind of big event for this week was the virtual meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, which was held by India. The organization is a kind of a bit of a who's who of authoritarian regimes, with really the largest ideological oddball out being India, which is the only fully de- full democracy of the bunch. Now, although not our focus here, one of the big items out of that uh, organization's meeting was Iran. Yeah, Iran was officially made a member. And at the next meeting, no surprise here, Belarus will become a member. Now, at the center of this group is the relationship between Russia and China, which has had attempted to be a counterweight to the Western and particularly American influence. Now, Putin would thank at the meeting other members for their support of Russian leadership during what he called, quote, pressure sanctions and provocations of the West. Uh, And he would also go on to point that out more specifically uh, with, he's used a couple of different terms, but again, kind of the uprising or the mutiny or whatever that's going to be. Now, at the same time, the New York Times had a big analyst piece this past week postulating that there is a beginning of a rift between Russia and China, either is forming or could be forming. And the argument from them is is pretty short, but it's easy to understand, It's that the relationship is really more about individuals than it is about states. And that actually goes back to political science, right? Uh, uh, Dictatorial regimes, authoritarian regimes uh, are typically less institutionalized and have much more emphasis placed on the personification of particular individuals, in this case, Zion Putin. So what if as a result of the war in the Ukraine and now the uprising, uh, it kind of maybe potentially puts Putin on less secure footing? And if that's the case, then does this change the relationship if China is made aware of the fragility of Russians' internal politics? Even if not, uh, China might use these minor instabilities to extract more demands from Russia, which again... Could lead to bigger tensions between the two, and of course, their relationship between the two is going to be very important moving forward for the United States, both in terms of our relationship with China and for our relationship with Ukraine as it continues to fight Russia. Now, I'll just—I'm going kind to of say quickly—I wasn't deeply convinced by the New York Times uh, opinion that there's going to be a d- dip, deep rift here. Um, but I do think there—I think where they are spot on could be the idea that there might be a price to be paid by Russia uh, uh, to keep from being isolated via China. What do you take about all of this, Ken?
1: Yeah, I um. So the article, the the um, editorial or guest essay in The Times was by a guy named Ryan Haas, uh, who was uh, President Obama's advisor on China policy. So it's sort of a, you know, Obama lens perspective, I guess, on this.
0: But, um, well, and you, they also had like, they yeah. also had a, a, an analysis piece to go along with that one, by the way. And I had to look up the two uh, uh, editors who were the ones that wrote that kind of to go along with it. So just a heads up, I was mentioning both of those in that story. Oh, great.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you summarized them well. I think um, a couple other other minor points, I guess, that Mr. Haas um, also made, which are interesting, when he was predicting that the, the rift is going to grow, um, he said that one of the reasons that um, China um, sort of tacitly supported the Russian invasion of Ukraine was that um, China believed that that would kind of um, Tie up uh, the 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 interest of the Western militaries, of the U.S. military, of the European militaries, and that that would kind of give um, China a little bit more free hand for kind of a little bit of military adventurism in in its part of Asia. Um, and it has been getting militarily more aggressive in its part of Asia. And the thought was that um, you know maybe China is thinking, well, America is not going to want to get in, involved in kind of underwriting wars in both Ukraine and in East Asia at the same time, so. The Give us, you know, we'll we just we'll be able to do a little bit more and, and not have pushback. And so so uh, Mr. Haas was suggesting that that was one of the motives that um, uh, Xi Jinping had for supporting Putin in the Ukraine war. But he said that that's kind of unraveling now because not only have all the um, Western militaries kind of you know gone pretty far in on on supporting Ukraine, but actually it's led to a lot more troops from the West being sent to that part of the world, including on the Chinese border, which is kind of the opposite of what he wanted. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. And also that um, to the extent that maybe one thing that was um, animating long-term Chinese planning was that they eventually want to try to take Taiwan, um, You know, the, the idea of seeing like, you know what Russia did was kind of a, a proxy for that, right? They're, they're looking at Ukraine, they're saying, well, that used to be part of Russia and that really should be part of Russia. And we're, we're gonna take it back. And the, the, you know, real, real difficulty that they've had, and they, they may, you know, everybody thought they would eventually succeed. But I think now people are thinking they may they won't eventually succeed. Um, you know, you know, is it doesn't it's not good for for China if, if they're if one of their main objectives was to do a similar kind of uh, military action to 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 take Taiwan. And so I, I think those are all real um, factors. On the other hand, I think I'm just exactly where you are here. Uh, despite that and i i sense that you know when you were saying that the these articles may be um exaggerating the 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 rift um that may be true because i think china and russia still have this shared interest in um you know uh uh basically um not being uh, you know being stronger than america basically and they yeah. And they're they're stronger than America together than they would be uh, separate and apart. And, uh, um, you know, if you look back uh, uh, to the 1970s, when there was the Sino-Soviet uh, split, um, that basically did weaken both those countries, you know, and, and strengthen America. And so I think they have a lot of incentive to try to stay aligned as, um, you know, kind of the authoritarian regimes who are counterweights to America in the in the geopolitical system and uh, and that they 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 both can recognize that they they have more ability to do that if they if they stick together so i think i i think if i think i took that to be what you were sort of yeah. saying also I, yeah i I, I think i think i'm on the same page as you there
0: yeah i think the i think the thing that could potentially i think the probable probability of a wrist rip hinges on and and again maybe that's what we're seeing here with again I think it's it's a big deal uh that Putin has an al uh, a a rival who is not yet leaving Russia and is also not afraid for his life yet <laughs> um but I, I think the possibility would be if there's a, a a bigger push on Putin's power in a, in a larger way. And China used that in the way that we see here in these analysts arguing that that, that, that they might. And that's a possibility to try to get, especially oil uh, flowing away from Europe and, and largely uh, to, to China, leading some of those pipelines. In other words, maybe putting the screws on Putin a little bit if they see some weakness there. Uh, I think the thing that could potentially, would potentially cause a split is if In response to that, Putin lashed out. Right, so as he's kind of going down, if China puts too many screws on, and so then Russia, uh, Putin specifically, then trying to push his back as a way to potentially supporting himself, that can lead you to a rift. Um, But yeah, I I agree, and and you're reading me rightly to say that I don't see that splitting right now because a, I don't think you have as much instability as as they're uh, postulating there for Putin, Um, at least not to a level that I think is going to change international policy yet. Uh and they're gonna to have to overcome the history, as you have rightfully mentioned, of the fact that the last time they split, it wasn't good for either partner in their bid to wanna to be what you might call the uh the anti West or the the West alternative. <laughs> you know, to maybe make it less uh negative.
1: Right. And and it actually was the uh, kind of uh the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union, really. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Which, I mean, surely Putin doesn't, I mean, well, although, I mean, there you go. I mean, Putin, um, it would be ironic if Putin went down under similar circumstances to the Soviet <laughs> Union, wouldn't it? Yeah. I'm not predicting that, but it would be a bit of a, a poetic justice, I guess. Um, but, I mean, I think the other thing, and this is, you know, kind of an extent beyond that, but I've thought about this in terms of the instability, um you know, one of the big concerns during my lifetime when you had the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, of course, that's a positive thing in some ways, but there are a lot of really dangerous nuclear weapons. <laughs> and, and, you know, what happens with that if you had those kinds of uh, instability or, or relationship breakdowns?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know that it could get much worse than it already has, but maybe it could.
0: Yeah, uh, Well, I mean, I can imagine it being a little bit worse, Ken, in the sense of you have you have an end indiv- I mean, it's hard to imagine somebody uh, you'd say, "Well, terrible individual, and he is, and I'm in no way supporting him, or him holding and maintaining power. But individuals like Putin, who are backed into corners, w- will not hesitate to do terrible, terrible things. And if they happen to have the ability to make part of that terrible thing, a, a, a nuclear device. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. That, yeah. Well, I agree. I
1: mean, I think I think he, could, he might use one now. And I also think we don't actually know that he has all the nuclear weapons that were the legacy of the Soviet Union. Other right. people could have some of those as well. So yeah. it's uh, yeah. So I think it's all we're already in a pretty bad situation as far as, you know, really knowing what happened with all the, the nuclear weapons the Soviets had and and, and or having faith that uh, they're in the hands of people who wouldn't use them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I guess we should probably uh, uh, stop there and in uh, this week's show. But you don't get to get away from me because here in just a few minutes, we're going to be uh, recording our bonus show. So I'm, I'm really excited for our midweek show to be coming out. And then we're on again two more weeks. Right. This is this is the first of three for the two of us. Yeah, that's awesome. So if you would like uh, to become a supporter of the Politics Guys, we would really like to have you because without our supporters, you, that's what keeps the podcast going. Now, that all sounds good and you might do it for some, you know, feel good reason. I, I'm happy if you want to do that. But you also get a lot of cool stuff if you become a supporter. And one of the big items uh, is ad-free versions of everything that we do as well as that supporters exclusive midweek show that I was just mentioning. Now. Ken and I, we have been going through the Constitution and, you know, generally, you're just kind of getting about one or two a month. But this week, we're going to be going through the Constitution for three weeks in a row. And we'd really love for you uh, to join in. We're going to be uh, starting on Article 3 of the Constitution and moving forward. Uh, all of the other episodes are there. So if you become a supporter, you can go back and you can start with our introductions to the Constitution as we go through uh, Articles 1 and 2. It's all there. And it's just a chance to kind of not do the news thing, but really kind of take a look at something that has a longer bit of shelf life. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. And to be a part of that, uh, you're going to have to become a a supporter. Now, how can you become a supporter of the Politics Guys? Well, to check it out, head to patreon.com slash politics guys. Now, when you get there, you're going to see all these different levels, the different things you get. So at one level, you can become part of our Discord group. At another, you're going to get the ad-free version of things. But again, take a look at all of that there at patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can see all those levels of support. Click on the level of support you want and the things that you'd like, uh, and you can do that. As a matter of fact, you can even, if you want to, become an executive producer of the Politics Guys. But take a look at that on patreon.com slash politicsguys. Now, if you'd like to support us other ways, we're also on Venmo, where we're at Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those options are in the show notes, or if you'd like to do it in a browser, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. Again, that's politicsguys.com slash support, and you can support us through any of our channels. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, you want to do more in the Constitution, but you're just not in a position financially to support the podcast right now, I totally get that and that it, we can fix that up for you. All you have to do is send an email to mike at politicsguys.com and he's going to get you sent up on our list, and you'll be getting an email from me or from him, and you'll, you'll be able to download your episode there. Whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use and share that episode on social media. If you've got a question, comment, gripe, question, or just anything else you'd like to share, you can reach us at, at com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you're going to find the notes for all of these right down there. You guessed it in the show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then.